Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today we're here with Associate Professor at the Harvard Ed School, Natasha Warraku, who for the past year spent time as a Russell Sage visiting scholar working on her book, What Merit Means, Admissions, Diversity, and Inequality at Elite Universities in the United States and Britain. Welcome back to campus and to the EdCast, Natasha. Thanks, Matt. I'm delighted to be back. Natasha, you spent the past academic year at the Sage Foundation analyzing how students in elite institutions understand merit in admissions, looking at schools both in England and the United States. Um, did you see any significant differences between the two countries in terms of how they view merit? Yeah, actually, they're they're quite different. Um, and you know, in fact, I was surprised by two kind of main things that I saw. First, the fact that these students are so different. Um, so just to give you a sense, the uh, U.S. students, uh, there are two things that kind of stand out about the way that the U.S. students think about merit with respect to admissions. First, they tend to think about um, calibrating merit, um, So, which means that you know, if you have a student who attended a high school that offers just two advanced classes, that student takes both and does really well, um, then that student seems to, uh, in, in the U.S. student's eyes, seems more um, were d deserving of, of um, admission than a student who attends, say, a high school, a more elite high school that offers eight, but that student takes four and does well in those four. So it's a kind of calibration. You look at what has the student done, done given the opportunities that they've had available to them. Um, the second thing that's very prominent among U.S. students is the, this notion of what I call a collective merit, which means that um, they see all of their peers as contributing to uh, a kind of collective. So, um, and together, this student body um, creates a, a great uh, learning environment. So one student might be great at the piano, another student might be a, a great scientist, um, another student might be a star athlete, and that sort of is their justification for athletic recruiting. Um, another student, I mean, a lot of students, in fact, use this to justify even legacy admissions, that, oh, well, this student, um, bring, admitting these students brings a lot of money to the university, and, you know, that, for example, might pay for three scholars scholarships for um, poor students. Um, and of course, race gets folded into this as well, right? So that um, a black student brings a, a, a perspective that a lot of white students haven't had before. So all of these, these fact diversity is, is defined much more broadly than just race and ethnicity. Um, whereas in Britain, there was none of this calibration or um, kind of collective. You got the high score on the math entrance exam, you deserve to go to Oxford and study math. So that student with the four um, advanced classes, um, they've had a lot more opportunities, but they've done, ultimately have done better, and they're the one who should get in. So very different ways of thinking about merit. Um, but what they shared in common was that they both are really uh, reproducing what their universities do and say. So, um, you know, we're used to hearing about campus protest, about, you know, liberal students criticizing the universities for not enough diversity, conservative students criticizing them for affirmative, race based affirmative action. But in fact, most students seem to really have internalized what their universities are saying and doing. Um, and, you know, they're really sort of they're reproducing a system in which they've won an incredibly competitive contest. Um, and in a way, this allows them to feel good about this, this, um, this uh, um, what they've achieved. 
So, um, you know, and the problem with this, though, is that um, these outcomes are highly unequal. So in Britain, you know, 7% of kids go to private high schools, but almost half of students at Oxford are um, from private high schools. And in the U.S., you know, around half of students at many elite places are paying full tuition, which is actually more than the median income, household income in the United States. Um, but the students don't see that, right? They see this as a fair system and one that rewards merit and that they've worked hard and they deserve what they've gotten. They don't see that other people also might work hard or haven't had those same opportunities. So there's differences, obviously, between the United States and the British perspectives. And I'm just curious if in any of your research you discovered why there were differences. I imagine there's some cultural differences, but um, anything come up in your research? Yeah, I mean, I think um, to really understand these differences, we have to look at why these universities are doing things differently in the first place. And that has a lot of historical roots. So historically, British universities have been much more separated from civic life, um, even though they've been publicly fund increasing publicly funded and completely publicly funded until, um, you know, in the latter part of the 20th century. Um, and, uh, you know, there's this, there's, the, the, it's, there's a sense that in Britain, the people who cared about inequality really thought about um, improving the lives of the working class, right? So reducing any inequality in terms of outcomes. In the United States, we focus much more on equality of opportunity, right? And this, you know, this is part of the American dream. And part of that is that is seeing these universities as, as playing a role in in a kind of as a sort of engine of opportunity. Um, if we think about the, the the civil rights movement in the United States that had a large impact on especially residential higher education, um, that, that led to obviously affirmative action, but also um, African-American studies, ethnic studies, um, centers for racial diversity. So all of these things really changed that, you know, there's a sort of different way of thinking about what the, the university does in society in these two national contexts. Closer to home, you've written about challenges to existing affirmative action policies in higher ed, including the Fisher, uh, Texas case that was heard in the Supreme Court in 2013. Um, while some fear that the court would curtail higher education admissions policies that factored race into admissions considerations, the justices upheld the legality of existing University of Texas policies where race serves as one of the many factors considered in reviewing prospective students. Um, what was your thinking on this case and its implications writ large? So the ruling was a mixed bag, as, as I'm sure um, many people have heard. You know, on the one hand, it did maintain the positive value of diversity for the overall mission of universities, and that wasn't really challenged. Um, on the other hand, um, it really seems to require a lot more attention to alternative race-neutral uh, means of achieving diversity. So it seems pretty clear that if there were another court case, which I'm sure there will be, um, the 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 courts will require these universities to prove that they've tried all of these other race-neutral alternatives. And in the past, um, they've kind of been given the benefit of the doubt. Um, and I think that you know, sort of fell under academic freedom. Um, but I think overall, this sort of diversity rationale is really limiting. And by the diversity rationale, I mean you know, this idea that um, affirmative action is justified because of this creation of a diverse learning environment. You know, I think it's part of the reason why the, the, the students I interviewed 
mostly think about their own benefit when they think about whether the university should practice race-based affirmative action. Um, and, you know, express less awareness of racial inequality, um, in unequal resources, um, et cetera. And I think that's, that's ultimately that's damaging. So I think, you know, if, if we think about the, the, the discourse um, writ large, we need to think about going beyond, you know, this diversity rationale, which I think is important, but I think is not the only reason that we care so much about race in higher education. So the Fisher case and other related cases that have tested affirmative action policies also reveal a divide in public opinion on how people feel about these policies. You've noted that your research has, quote, found that undergraduates are quite comfortable with these flexible notions of merit and that colleges and universities use to select these student bodies. Uh, for those who build and uphold admissions policies, be it at the state or university level, what would you share regarding why flexible notions of merit are important to maintain diversity on campus, and why does this even matter? You know, so I do still think that flexible admissions is important because um, it allows universities to set priorities based on the mission rather than, you know, a kind of blind attention to some test that has very little meaning for what the university is actually trying to do. And I think that's what we should be really thinking about. What is this, what is the mission of this university and how um, will our admissions policy serve that mission? Um, and, um, you know, I think, and again, overall, aside from this, um, you know, thinking about flexibility, I think our universities need to be a lot more upfront about racial inequality and um, that's the racial equality that surrounds us in American society. I mean, I think it's hard to ignore right now when Ferguson, Missouri is is, is burning up. Um, but I think mostly we don't talk about that. We talk a lot about diversity, and but we think of diversity as equal groups and our students are internalizing that and I think that the fact of the matter is that these groups are not equal um, and students need to understand the how and the why of that. So in terms of upcoming court challenges beyond Fisher, obviously, what, what do you see on the horizon and how fragile are existing higher ed policies on affirmative action? Um, you know, I think this matter is definitely not settled. I'm sure there's going to be another case. Um, Ed Blum, who was the funder of the um, the Fisher case, is now looking for plaintiffs for court cases at UNC Chapel Hill, at Wisconsin-Madison, and actually here at Harvard. Um, so... Um, you know, and also no one's really tested what it's going to mean for universities to be able to um, prove that they've tried all race-neutral al alternatives. And I know that universities right now are sort of looking at this question and how they might um, withstand um, a court case. Um, so I think all this remains to be seen. It's a little on edge. And I think, you know, in a way... Um, you know, in, in a way, this language of diversity and benefits to to majority students um, really has problematic implications for students um, and how, in terms of how they think about race and diversity when they arrive to campus. And I think that's really something that I want, I think we should be thinking carefully about. Natasha, last question. Uh, it's not coming out in this upcoming year, but uh, this book that you're putting together, tell us a little bit about that, when people can expect it. Yeah, so the book um, uh, is, is, nearly almost done um, and it, uh, it's it's going to be about looking at um, what merit means to students in these two national contexts and how that and the implications of that and what that those understandings of meritocracy do for their under for their sense of racial justice inequality in society um, and also race relations on campus um, so it's a look at students at elite universities in the United States and Britain
We look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Natasha Warku, thank you so much for being on the Acast. Special thanks to Mary Tamer for providing the questions today. Good luck with everything, and welcome back to the HGSE campus. Thanks very much. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.